Hi, I'm Joe Feeks, editor of Pig Health Today, and with me is Dr. Scott D., director of research at Pipestone. Scott, good to see you. Joe, it's been a while. Good to see you again. It has been. Now, you and I have known each other for 20, 25 years, and I always associated you with PERS, but I guess you say you've pretty much got that figured out, and you're looking at some other diseases now. I did move on a bit when PED rolled into the U.S., and so I've, I've focused on that more, but I still think about PERS every day. I, we just don't quite have the pressure we used to. Well, I'm sure the pork industry appreciates the fact that you're now turning your expertise toward PED. Now, this is a disease that came along in 2013, and I guess you had your first experience with it about a year later? Yeah, we were really lucky in 2013. We only had two of our, at that time, maybe 50-some managed farms infected. And the, I think it was like a 60 or 70% incidence rate in the United States. And here we were skating along with only a couple of farms. But in January 2014, things changed. And when did you start taking a look at the possible link between PED and feed or feed ingredients? Yeah, right at that time. We had in uh, several days, maybe two to three, four days, we had six to eight of our farms become infected that had been filtered. They'd stayed free of PERS for you know, several years, three, four, five years now. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, they basically all got infected with PD almost within the same 24 to 48 hour period of time. And did you identify what the source of that was or how it got in there? The one uh, commonality across all those farms was that they had a, a specific population of the farm, say the farrowing house or gestation or gilt development unit, a feed outage. And so in one bin, they ran out of feed and they had to have an emergency delivery from a mill, not a single mill, but many different mills. But that was a commonality, was they all had this emergency delivery. And the feed that went into that bin and was consumed by those pigs, were the, those were the index cases of PD. And so they became infected right away and, and had clinical signs of vomiting and diarrhea, which was, you know, oh my gosh, there's a link here with feed because that's the only thing in common across all these farms. And they all had the same history of a, this need for a delivery. And so we went inside the bins actually and collected a lot of the material around the side of the bin and found virus in those bins. And then we did an experiment and we fed it to pigs under uh, control conditions and they became infected. So that was the first time anyone had ever shown that contaminated feed could infect pigs through natural feeding behavior. But, I mean, that's good detective work, but feed is very complex. I mean, you right. can have <laughs> hundreds of ingredients. Uh, how do you begin to isolate the source of a PED infection? Good question. That was, a, that was the next question posed to our veterinary team. Um, and we, so what basically we did, we did, we did another study where we took many ingredients, like you said, individual ingredients, and we purposely inoculated them with a standard amount of virus and we cultured them over time. And we started to see that some ingredients, the virus lived very well, and some ingredients it didn't even live for a day. And so we got to get this little bifurcation of risk. You know, certain ingredients for some reason seem to support the virus very well, while others didn't. And so that helps us then drill down on that subset versus all of the ingredients like you alluded to, which makes it almost like a test pattern on a TV. You don't really know what to look at. Exactly. So what ingredients were the ones that were, seemed to be harboring this virus? It's fascinating. Um, soybean meal, for example. Soybean meal. Mm -hmm. For example, we, 
we cultured virus out of soybean meal samples for 180 days in a row. So virus lived very well in soybean meal. It lived very well in lysine, amino acid lysine. It lived very well in choline, which is a B vitamin. And so there were these certain ingredients that seemed to be great sources, a great medium for the virus to survive. While others, you know, it was zilch, nothing would grow. And they, these ingredients would actually bring in the PED or the PED would come from elsewhere and say, oh, this is, this is a good place for me to live. Exactly. I think, I think how it works is, at least our hypothesis was, an ingredient would become contaminated and then it would meet up with soybean meal. The soybean meal, I think, is the the ultimate matrix. I think it really supports the virus. And so it may not be the source, but it's, a, it's, a, it's the ingredient that once the virus contacts it from however, be it lysine or choline, which a lot we import from China, then it lives because the environment provided by the soybean meal is, I think, very well balanced with pH and there's some, there's some characteristics of it that may make a virus live longer than, than not. So I think it's kind of a there's the, there's the point source, but then there's also the matrix that kind of sets up the environment for the virus. So it didn't come from the soybean meal per se. It probably came from an ingredient and then... Possibly. We do, we do import soybean meal from China. Um, we import a lot of soybean meal from China. But we also import many other things. And some of them are these ingredients that will support virus. And so we don't know exactly what ingredient it was, but we do have a short list now of risk factors versus the entire diet, as you know, all of the ingredients, that's so many. We kind of got it drilled down to a subset. So this investigation has taken you overseas? Well, we, our company does a lot of work in China and our veterinarians over in China were working with PD problems way before they became a problem in the United States. And so the, one of the things they noticed was there were a lot of ingredients on those Chinese farms that were shipped to the United States. And they found similar ingredients from China in the U.S. mills. And so here's products. Products is coming from China all the time. And I don't, make, I don't mean to pick on the Chinese, but the reason why we look at this is because the original index case virus from the U.S. matched a virus in China to almost 100%. Mm -hmm. And so that's a pretty good, even the Chinese admit, that's probably where it came from because it's so closely related based on the fingerprint, so to speak. So that's how we started setting up our model to try to simulate whether contaminated ingredients could move the virus across the ocean, which was the kind of the wild card that the USDA kept saying, well, it can't come in through feed because it can't live across the ocean. So we wanted to test that. That could be right, but it could be wrong. So that was, that's where we went next. And it couldn't live across the ocean because, or, or at least they thought it couldn't live across the ocean because? Just a swag, you know, too long too hot, you know, who knows where that came, it was just a swag. And we just wanted to know. So we did an experiment to test that in a model setting at South Dakota State University. So walk me through the study, what exactly did you do? We developed a simulation of a trip from Beijing to Shanghai to San Francisco to Des Moines. And we used a timetable from a program, a shipping program. We went to a shipping company and said, how long would it take to do this? And so they gave us that period of time. And then we asked the computer, how, what are the ingredients we bring into China? And so we had some representative ingredients. And then we went to the weather data and said, if, we, if we're gonna model this 
in late December, January of 2012, 2013, prior to the virus's appearance in April 2013, what was the weather like during that period of time over land and sea? And so we went back and found those data. And we took all of that together. We took ingredients. We spiked them with virus. We put them in little containers. We put them in an environmental chamber, which is like an incubator with a computer. And in that computer, you can put in, I want the temperature to go like this over the journey every day. I want the relative humidity to go like this, basically mimicking the conditions that happened in our simulated period of time. And then we would test the ingredients at various stages during that journey. And at the end of it all, we'd see who was still alive day 37, which was the length of the whole simulation mm -hmm. post-inoculation. And so that's where we came up with Here's the ingredients that the virus is still living under these, as representative as we could, conditions. Timetable, environmental conditions, feed ingredients, viral load. We tried to just do a CSI pipestone, basically. CSI pipestone, mm -hmm. I like that. Yeah. But this is an international thriller. Yeah, yeah, it, it does uh, cross boundaries and it does make uh, some of the governmental folks a little bit nervous. but. Uh, I think we have to study that and, and understand that risk factor that feed is now a possible risk for moving virus, not only from farm to farm in a country or a local area, but between countries in the global. So getting back to the end of the study, what were the takeaway messages or conclusions? Well, the PED work, which was study one, let's see, we found that the virus was alive in soybean meal, there we go again, lysine, choline, and vitamin D. So those of the 20-some we worked with, those were the four that had live virus at the end of the journey. This 37-day simulation of going from Beijing to Shanghai to San Francisco to Des Moines. And simulation is, is good, but some people might say, well, why not just take these samples and actually follow them on the, on the boat or the plane or however they're coming? Yeah, it'd be great. Yeah, I mean, is that, is that something that, that uh, would be the logical next step? Or, or, yeah. or do you feel that a simulation really got a good snapshot of, of the real world? Yeah, I don't think we could politically, purposefully spike samples and chase them down the road. I, I, I'd love to do that, but I think we'd be getting a little bit of uh, hot water over that one. So. Yeah. Without having that opportunity, this is the best thing we can do. And we understand the limitations, you know, we understand the strengths. And so we just kind of draw conclusions based on what we've done and what we yet need to do. So, yeah, that was the next step. And in your presentation, you use the expression surrogate viruses. Mm -hmm. This sounds even more mysterious. <laughs> Tell me about those. Well, that was the next phase. And so now we've, we've developed this model and we've used ingredients that are representative the next question was, what else can make it across the ocean, so to speak, besides PD? We already answered that one. What else? So there's a group, a new group in um, the United States called the Swine Health Information Center. You're familiar with that. Dr. Paul Sundberg is a director. It's funded by the Pork Board and NPPC and ASV. Great. He looks at protecting the nation. That's one of its major goals. And Dr. Sundberg and I are friends. and. He saw our model with PD and started asking the question, what else could survive? And our vets were asking the same thing. I said, well, let's just do it again, but use what we call surrogate viruses when we can't use the actual pathogen. So for example, foot and mouth disease, we can't work with, we have to find a virus that's built the same way and potentially could survive in the same way 
from the same family, but it's not uh, foot and mouth disease. And so we, we looked at the list of viruses that Paul had and his board had kind of categorized as high risk. And we selected 10 from that list. Some of them we could work with the virus proper, others we had to find a surrogate for. So that's what we mean by surrogate is a, a virus from the same family as a targeted pathogen, as well as having very well validated diagnostic tests, to sh you know, so that it's not hard to find if it's there. So there's PCRs, you can grow it, you know, you can put it into pegs. All of these steps, all these metrics are validated. So that's, and, that's and that was with foot and mouth. Foot and mouth, we use Seneca Valley virus, okay. which is a pathogen on its own right. You probably heard about yes. that. And it's they're basically they come from the same family. They're the same size, the same shape, the same nucleic acid. And we've got great diagnostics for Seneca. So for us, it seemed to make great sense. Let, let's just use that one. And it lived very well. It, it I think it mimicked. Uh, Mimicked FMD pretty well. And what about African swine fever? I mean, that's getting a lot of attention over in Europe and so forth, and exactly. people are on guard for it here. How could the work that you've done be used to yeah. kind of track that virus? Oh, you're good. Good question. Um, African swine fever is a challenge because there's no virus in the same family, so it's all by itself in its own little group, and it's obviously a very, very high-risk pathogen. So you can only work with it in special facilities that are certified to be able to handle those kind of pathogens. One such facility is at Kansas State University. And we approached the researchers at Kansas State University, Dr. Bob Rowland, Dr. Megan Niederwerder, and the Swine Nutrition Group, Mike Tokash and, and the gang. Will you guys take our model, set it up in your lab, use the actual virus itself from Georgia, the country of Georgia, so the Eastern Europe strain. If we develop a, a an environmental curve that matches Eastern Europe across the Atlantic, you remember the Chinese obviously is across the Pacific, and we provide the ingredients and we provide the funds along with Swine Health Information Center, can we do this together? And they said, you bet. So we are going to be starting that phase of the investigation probably in a couple weeks. Mm -hmm. So we'll be actually using the real deal in the, in the proper controlled conditions where there's no risk to the outside world. They, they work with the virus there routinely. It's a, the building is built the right way to prevent this from ever getting out. So that's going to be a huge deal for us because we're going to be able to not worry about the surrogate. We're going to be able to actually work with the actual pathogen. That's going to be a big one. Absolutely. Now, getting back to the other study that you did, though, I mean, you talked about finding PED in soybean meal, vitamin D, choline. You mentioned a few others. And these were ones that came over from, you suspect, that they were, came from ingredients that, that were from Asia. So practically speaking, what do we do with that information? Do we right. not import ingredients from Asia until this situation gets cleared up? Do we find other sources? What, what, yeah. What's your recommendation from a health standpoint? Yeah, well, we're not quite there yet because we have to finish the project and we have to kind of see, well, here's the final outcomes. So that's, and that survival is just phase one. Phase two is mitigation. So what can we use to treat the feed to inactivate the viruses? So we're gonna do that work too, funded by Swine Health Information Center. So phase one, we'll study which viruses actually live in which ingredients. Stage two will say, let's take those high-risk combinations and test them against various chemical treatments and see which of these 
possible mitigants can knock it out. That's coming. Because then you, can have, then you have a potential solution to the problem. You can say, well, if you can treat the feed, you will, at least under our conditions of the study, prevent the virus from surviving. So then it comes down to, you know, down the road a ways, talking with legislators. And, you know, what do we need to do for safeguarding North America? Do we need required mitigation from the country of origin? Do we need selection, like you said, selection of path or, uh, feed ingredients from countries with high health status, not just based on price, but based on status of the country? Those are big, big changes that without a good set of data that's objective and repeatable, it's hard to have those conversations with, with governmental officials. So, and I understand that. So we're, we're kind of building a grassroots movement right now. We're getting in, you know, we're getting this through the study. We've got eight of the 12 viruses done. And then we'll start the mitigation phase on the targeted combinations. So by the end of next, uh, end of this year, if not, hopefully, hopefully before the end of this year, we'll have all that done. And then we can make a strong case to go have a discussion and start the conversation about, hey, we might have to start thinking about changing things. Well, it's a fascinating story, and I know we're not at the end of the story. We're going to have yet. to continue this discussion. We're going to have to get together again, it looks like. I hope so. <laughs> we have been talking with Detective Scott D, or I should say, uh, veterinarian Scott D. Uh, he is director of research for Pipestone in Minnesota. Scott, thank you again. Joe, it's good to see you. Thanks good to for see the you opportunity. As well.